You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. So we have finished officially the book of 1 Samuel, and now we're jumping into 2 Samuel uh, as we look at our study in the life of David. So if you have a Bible, uh, would you please open it up to 2 Samuel? Well, I'm going to start right at verse 1, and we're going to pick up where the story has left off. And uh, this is a unique text, but I think God may have something really valuable here for us this morning, as he always does. So would you pray with me before we read 2 Samuel chapter 1? Father, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for how it promises to lead and guide us to be our food You said that man should not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from you. And so, Lord, we come with expectant hearts that you would fill us and feed us this morning. We pray that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray you'd give us minds that um, can focus, that can listen, that can be open. Um, Lord, and may the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start here and read the first 10 verses. 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 10. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. So let, let me bring you up to speed. Just We'll stop right there. Um, last week, we talked about how David... He's kind of been wavering a little bit in his faith, and he had been fleeing from Saul, but fleeing to the Philistines. So he he actually set up camp. He set up with his men among the land of the Philistines, who were one of God's enemies at this time in history. And the Philistines were about to attack Israel, and David was going to actually go with them. But the Philistines actually kicked him out and said, no, you can't go with us. And we don't know what really David was planning to do. Was he really going to attack his own people? Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us, but the Bible does tell us that the Philistines said, you can't go to this battle that we're about to go. You need to go back to your home, which is Ziklag, the, his temporary home in the land of the Philistines. And you can see that in verse 1, David remained two days in Ziklag. So there's this battle going on between God's people and, and the Philistines. So Saul and Jonathan, they're leading the charge against God's enemies, the Philistines. And David and his men are not participating, okay? So that kind of sets the context here for what's going on. So this guy escapes from the battle, um, and he he uh, reports what happens, okay? So let's pick up at verse 4. 
And David said to him, how did it go? How did the battle go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. So this is the first time David hears of this. This is a big deal. That David said to the young man, who told him, um, how did, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite another group of people that were God's enemies at this time. Verse 9, And he said to me, Saul, said to this Amalekite, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, these symbols of rule and reign and authority, a crown and the armlet that was on his arm, And I brought them here to my Lord, being David. So this is an account of how Saul dies. And Saul has been a focal point up to this point in the life of David all throughout the book of 1 Samuel, as we've seen. And this here announces kind of the end of an era. It's the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. It's the end of Saul and his reign over Israel. Now, this account poses a problem. We didn't do this because we skipped over it. We've had to pick and choose in this series the whole time. But there's an account of Saul's death in chapter 31. If you just flip back a page, you don't have to read it, but I'll just tell you, it's very different than the account of the Amalekite here. So at the end of of 1 Samuel, in chapter 31, we read that Saul committed suicide. He fell on his sword and and took on his own death. So the question is, what do we make of this account here from the Amalekite where he says that he killed him? What do we make of that? Well, most commentators would say that this Amalekite, God's enemy, he's simply lying. And he probably stumbled upon the bodies of Saul and Jonathan as people were going over and taking spoil from the battle. And he takes the crown and the armlet that signify the authority of the king and and he wants to bring them to David knowing that Saul was David's enemy. I'm sure this story was circulating around everywhere. And he probably thought that David would be happy and that if David heard that somebody took out his enemy, that that would make David really, really happy and hand him over these symbols of authority? Well, we're going to see in a little bit that the way this Amalekite operated with David was was very foolish. And he will pay for it dearly because he failed to see the unique nature of God's anointed king. He failed to know that David himself could have killed Saul, as we've seen, many times and didn't do so out of respect and reverence for God. Even if Saul is wicked, God has put him there sovereignly. David did not want to force God's hand. Yet this Amalekite 
that is a sworn enemy of God and God's people in the Old Testament is boasting to David that he took Saul's life. And David's going to have a really strong reaction to this. We're going we're gonna to get to that. But this morning, I want to spend the majority of our time looking at David's response. I want us to focus on David's response to the news of Saul and Jonathan's death. Look at verse 11. Look at the response. I want us to think about the response. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. I think, this, I think maybe this is the heart of this chapter that has some really interesting applications for us as Christians. Now think about verse 11. Just let your mind meditate on it. Look at it. Verse 12, they tore their clothes. That's an ancient symbol of grief and remorse. And in following, we see verse 12, they mourned and they wept and they fasted. Like how can we eat food when something this tragic, this heavy has gone down? But as I was working on this this week, I thought of the movie The Wizard of Oz. Okay? Now, I'm just curious, how many in this room have never seen The Wizard of Oz? Don't be shy. But most of you have seen Okay, I, I thought maybe we'd missed a generation with The Wizard of Oz. Like, in the, in the 80s, like my cousins and I at my grandma's house, every time we'd hang out there, we'd always watch The Wizard of Oz. But that was the 80s. I didn't know if, like... Y'all, like in your 20s, it's, you guys in your 20s have seen The Wizard of Oz? Yeah? Okay. So it's still kind of a classic. I didn't know that. Good to hear. So this illustration won't be lost on you. So, Wicked Witch of the West, I won't go into the whole story. Clearly, I don't need to. But, uh, you know, there's the Wicked Witch of the West, and she's kind of the arch enemy of Dorothy and the Munchkins and the Wicked uh, the Is it the, the Witch of the North? That's the good witch, right? Yeah. Um, is, it, is she Glendolyn? Glenda. Help me. Glinda. Okay. Maybe it's popular because of Wicked, the Broadway show, and it's connected, and so you got to kind of know the connections. All right. It's all coming together for me in the moment as I'm preaching. Um, anyway, Dorothy, as you guys know, she takes the bucket of water. Who would have known that a bucket of water was all it took? You know, throws it on the witch. I'm melting, I'm melting, right? And she's and she dies. And what happens? I went on YouTube and I watched the scene. I hadn't seen it in 35 years. Uh, they throw a party and they sing a song. What's the song? Ding dong, the witch is dead, da 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 whatever. The munchkins run around and Dorothy, she's on this throne, and the witch is dead, and they're throwing a party. They're singing songs of joy, right? Celebration, the enemy's been defeated. No more oppression from the wicked witch of the West. And you would think that maybe that's how David and his men would have responded, right? I mean, think of everything we've, we've, we've looked at in 1 Samuel. Think of the persecution of Saul, the wickedness of Saul. I mean, he's not messing around. Attempted murder of David so many times, 
calculating, manipulating. But they don't throw a party. They don't sing songs of joy that King Saul is dead. They don't say, finally, he got what he deserves. They don't say that. What do they do? They tear their clothes. They tear their clothes. They weep. They mourn. They fast. Now, jump down to verse 17. I want to show you David's beautiful response. Okay? He's writing poetry. He's maybe singing this. Uh, he's known to be a man of, of artistry, a poet. Look at verse 17. We're not going to go through this verse by verse. But I just want you to feel the, the, the weight of this, the emotion of this. The opposite of ding dong, the witch is dead. Let's throw a party. This is a lament. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. So let it not be forgotten. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your highest places. How the mighty have fallen. Listen to the repetition of that phrase as it comes. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mount, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, no fields or of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. So it sounded like a curse over the place where Saul and Jonathan were killed, the mountains of Gilboa. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of, jo of, of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, you, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So this is a peculiar response, is it not? You would think it's time for a party. Why do you think David responded this way? I think there's a lot for us to learn here. I think part of David's response could have to do with reflecting God's heart. And many years ago, the prophet would come, his name was Ezekiel, and he would reflect God's heart, and he would say these beautiful words. Totally different situation, different historical context, but shows God's heart as he speaks for God. And this is God's heart. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And part of God's heart is one of justice for sure, 
but not necessarily taking great joy in that justice. The Bible says clearly that, that we reap what we sow. It's just a matter of time. You will reap what you sow. But if what we reap is the wrath of God for what you've sown, I don't think God throws a party at this inevitable outcome. And maybe we shouldn't either. So maybe David's just reflecting God's heart here. Takes no, takes no joy, takes no pleasure in the death of the, in the wicked. Saul was certainly wicked. But, but why else would David be so upset, so sad? I think it might be something like this. God's ordained institution at this time in history is his people, the nation of Israel. And they're kind of a mess right now. There's not a lot of unity when you see this division between Saul and, and David. But they're called to be a light to the nations. The prophet says in Isaiah, I raised up Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. Like non-believers would look in and see the light of God's people. They're not seeing light right now. They're seeing darkness. The enemies of God, the Philistines, the Amalekites, they've got some ammunition here to say, look at these fools that follow Yahweh and how much chaos they're in. Now, why would we want to be a part of that? I think David might have felt the grief of that. Like Saul's led us into a mess. We just got defeated in this battle. He's been a horrible king. Saul's wicked leadership. But David, nevertheless, now is the time to mourn because the death of Saul just shows he didn't have any repentance. And even more so, Jonathan's death is this blow because they were best friends. So all this to say, there's, there's good reason. Israel's a mess. There's division. Saul dies, no seeming repentance. Jonathan, my best friends, dead. Like all that to say, there, there's good reason here to mourn and not throw a party. But I think there's still another angle on this that we can learn and grow from. I want to state what I think is one of the big dangers that I see in rejoicing at the death of the wicked. Now those words are intentional, rejoicing. Is there a necessary and right sense of relief? Probably. It's good to have a sense of relief if you've been oppressed. That's good, that's right, that's normal. But rejoicing at the death of the wicked, like throwing a party at the death of the wicked, might just be one step away from pride. Feel that? Rejoicing at the death of the wicked might be just walking a little too close to the line of pride, and pride always separates us from God. David does the opposite of pride here. Mourning, grieving like we see from David and his men might be the response that reflects holiness and a desire to glorify God. 
A few years ago, I was, I was confronted with a situation that kind of reminds me of this in a more modern, smaller context. The Vine Church has always been um, an Acts 29 church. And many years ago in 2014, um, the very influential leader, his name was Mark Driscoll, who founded Acts 29, he had to be removed from Acts 29 leadership. Um, a lot of you have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. Um, on the one hand, it's kind of Christian celebrity gossip. Um, so do you need to listen to it? Maybe, maybe not. On the other hand, if you're a leader, um, it's an amazing cautionary tale. And you can run the opposite direction and probably see blessing. But Mark was removed from leadership. And he had a huge impact on thousands and thousands of people in a local church in Seattle, but radiating out from there in, in some really significant ways through the power of the internet and podcasts and, and things like that. But I remember sitting in my backyard and checked my email on my phone and I get this email saying that uh, Max 29 leadership has formally removed Mark and Marshall Church from the network that we have been a part of up to that point for about five or six years. And I get this email and I read it and like, wow, this is, this is heavy. This is the founder. This is someone who's been influential in my life for a number of years. But we knew that uh, if he had not, like speaking for me as a, as a pastor at that time of the vine, we knew that if changes hadn't been made, we probably would no longer be Acts 29. Um, this is almost 10 years ago now because there were so many red flags with Mark. And so get the email. He's been removed. And in a sense, you know, I felt this deep sense of relief, but also this deep sadness because the church that he led, thousands of people, mega church, many campuses, horribly broken. And just like in our, in our text, there's ammunition for unbelievers to look in at the local church there and say, man, Christianity is for fools. They put up with this guy? Like sadness over the brokenness all around, spiritual carnage everywhere that's still being dealt with a decade later. But as I reflect on my own heart, I think, man, if there was rejoicing, you know, if we threw a Mark Driscoll's out party and invited people over and there's drinking and laughing and joke telling, like what does that feel like? To me, that feels like pride. It feels a lot like, like this. Like you remember the, the Pharisee that Jesus talks about in a famous parable, Luke 18, the, fair, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? A lot of you remember this. Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is, is, is kind of like this. Entrance into the kingdom of God is kind of like this. Think about it like a Pharisee and a tax collector and a Pharisee stands up and he basically says, he, he prays, God, I thank you that I'm basically not like any of these idiots around me. How's that for a prayer? And the tax collector just beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that tax collector 
goes home justified. The Pharisee does not. Now, there's a lot we could say about that that I won't say this morning. But if we throw a party at the downfall of Mark Driscoll, if David throws a party at the downfall of, of Saul, I feel like it just gets really close to like, man, praise God that I'm not an idiot like Mark Driscoll. Praise God, I haven't been removed from my church. That'll never happen to me. God, I praise you that the church that I get to help lead, man, we're doing good. Like that's that's dangerous right there. That's pride right there. And Jesus warns in his in his parable in the clearest way possible with these dramatic characters of a Pharisee supposed to be holy and a tax collector, kind of the scum of the earth at that time from a Jewish perspective. That repentance is the issue. Humility is the issue. And, 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 a, and, a, and a Pharisee who's prideful will be rejected. A tax collector who's repentant and humble, he's accepted. See, rejoicing in the, de- in the death or the downfall of the wicked, man, it just it starts to smell like pride. It's dangerous. We should be careful. But if there's mourning and, and genuine sadness, it might show a humility that actually qualifies someone for leadership in God's kingdom. And that's, jumping back to our text, that's kind of what seems to be implied here. Because one of the big questions, like 30,000 foot view of First and Second Samuel is, who's qualified to lead God's people? Israel wanted a king, and they got one. For better, for worse. And as you're reading this, imagine yourself reading this for the first time as an ancient Israelite. You're like, this Saul guy, he, he, something's starting to smell funny here. He's not been obedient to what God asked him to do. This David guy, he seems to be trending in the right direction. Not perfect, but kind of trending in the right direction. And I think this account seeks to underscore that. He's showing here a genuine grief. The loss of 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 God's anointed leadership. It's, it's just been broken, but there's still a void there. And he's going to take over, but it's still kind of this thing he's taking over. It's kind of a mess right now. But all of that shows the humility of David's heart. That an ancient reader would look and go, okay, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. He shows the humility of mourning, the brokenness of what God intended to be beautiful. So when you see someone reaping what they've sown in a very painful way, when you see the removal of maybe a high-profile pasture goes down in the fire of controversy, maybe think about your, your least favorite politician. That's not hard for some of us. And the, the, whoever that is, and it's, the, the list is long from American history, or even the short time we're living in right now, there's controversy surrounding those people that's maybe your least favorite politician. And let's say they go down because of some of these things they're involved in. Maybe we can take some cues from David here, who's shown to have godly character in this account. Like he forsakes the pride of celebration that might show a heart that's more prideful than humble. Yeah, they got what they deserved. But as Christians, do we get what we deserve? Isn't that the heart of the gospel? We have not gotten what we deserve. 
but rather we, we grieve the reality of sin that has infected God's ordained institutions and brought about some consequences that are very painful for many, many people. Like whether it's politics, whether it's the local church. So it's good that justice is done. Hear me say that. It's always good that justice is done. Make no mistake. But may there also be no gloating that is one step away from pride that could separate us from God. You feel that? Mourning and grieving, even though probably relieved in some sense, is the right response. We see this from David when his enemy is dead. And so may we do the same. May we do the same. Well, we need to look at finally how David, we're going to come back to where we started and how David responds to this Amalekite in the news. Look at verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. How do we make sense of this? Well, I think it might not be that far off from what we've already seen in this passage. Like, remember, David had the chance to kill Saul many times. We've seen that. And he refused. He chose the pathway of humility. He trusted that God would deal with Saul, and he, so he didn't need to take matters into his own hands. God raised up and appointed Saul. God will also bring him down as he sees fit. That's David's mindset. So when it comes to that which is clearly ordained by God, David knew that it was not his job to try to force God's hand. He would trust the Lord as painful and consequential as that was for him. But this Amalekite, if you remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon, even though he's probably lying to try to maybe earn some favor that he thought he was going to get, David didn't know he was lying. He thought he was telling the truth. This Amalekite, this sworn enemy of God, all through the pages of the Old Testament, boasts that he killed God's anointed one because he thought it would give him favor in the eyes of David. But sadly for, for him, he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't have any respect or context for, for God's anointing and, and plan for King Saul. See, the, the killing of God's anointed king, no matter who you were, if you're just a normal Israelite, if you did that, you would receive the death penalty in Israel. David knew this, and even more so, God's command was that Israel would be his hand of judgment on the Amalekites. We didn't get into this, but in 1 Samuel, this is the, the, the reason that Saul was rejected. God told him to wipe out the Amalekites. God said, you will be my hand of judgment on this people that's been wicked for century after century after century, and my patience has run out with them. And so Israel, you will be my hand of judgment 
on the Amalekites. And Saul didn't do it. He didn't do exactly what God commanded him to do. And so God rejected him. That's in 1 Samuel. You can read that. So in, in, in judgment falling on this Amalekite, we see David's reverence and respect for God. He brings judgment on the Amalekites as God commanded, and he followed the law of God, which would have been that if you kill God's anointed king, you will be subject to the death penalty. So I think that's maybe the best way to make sense of this. That could raise a lot of questions, um, and we would love to hear any questions that you might have. You can reach out to me at any time. So in the end, in closing, what, what do we make of this text? There's wisdom in grieving, not gloating or celebrating when God's chosen leaders fall. That falling almost always means there's fallout. There's, there's what I call spiritual carnage. Oftentimes long after they've been removed, whether it's Saul or some modern day megachurch pastor or whatever. It's a time for grieving, rebuilding. And I think it's important that we never see Jesus, the true king, gloating over his enemies. What do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus weeping just like David did. And as, and as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, to embrace the plan of his Father for the salvation of all those who would come to him in, in faith and repentance through the cross, through his death, the resurrection. He's marching towards Jerusalem to enact this plan that was from before the foundation of the world. And the Bible says in Luke 19 that when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, the, the place that's supposed to be this shining city on a hill that again is in shambles, spiritually speaking. He drew near the city and saw the city. He wept over it. Verse 41. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known that this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's just predicting what will happen. And that's the judgment of God on the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't gloat over that. They rejected him. He doesn't gloat over that. He weeps. I wish it was different. I wish it was different. But there's wisdom in grieving the failure of our leaders. That shows humility. Reject the pride of gloating and celebrating. And this is the foundation upon which David is going to try to rebuild the kingdom. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. And this is this is not going to be without struggle. But we know that the true king, Jesus, grieves the failure of leaders. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit grieves. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This shows Jesus' heart. 
This shows his love for the beauty of what should be. So we can look Saul's failure square in the face, and I think we should, and run the opposite direction. And let's join Jesus and David in grieving when things are not as they're supposed to be. But we know as Christians, one day, it's just a matter of time. It's not if, it's when. It's not if, it's when. All tears of grief from horrible leadership will be wiped away. There will be no more failed leaders like Saul. And Jesus, he will make all things right as the ultimate true leader who will never fail us. Come, Lord Jesus, may it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for what you're doing in your word, in the hearts of your people. Would you help us? Would you help us pursue humility that looks like your heart? May we be people who weep at things that should be cried about. May we rejoice at things we should rejoice about. Um, Give us that wisdom, Lord. May we have your heart. May it be reflected in our lives. We thank you that you have given us your heart through the power of your Holy Spirit, accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and given to all those who turn to him in faith and repentance. Lord, may that be who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.